Hey everyone, and welcome to Radically Normal. This is Michael, and I'm here with Andre. On this episode titled Relocation and Praise, looking into chapters 11 and 12 of Nehemiah, we discuss people moving into the city of Jerusalem and the dedication of the wall. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hey guys, we have great news. Our Radically Normal podcast wristbands just came in, and we're selling them for $3. So if you're interested in supporting the podcast, and yes, it takes money to run a podcast. It takes so much money to run a podcast. It's incredible. But again, nobody's trying to guilt trip you into giving or anything, because that's not what we're about. We're here to serve. We're here to teach. We're here to discuss God's word and the church. But if you would like to support our podcast, we do have $3 wristbands coming out, and so... We would love to share those with you guys, and it can help you start conversations about Radically Normal if you're interested. So give us a shout via email or the Instagram page or whatever else, and we will get that to you. Yeah, or just let us know if you know one of us personally. We could get uh, the wristband to you pretty easily. Uh, the wristbands are actually pretty cool. They're the same color as the as the uh, art on the podcast that you see on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc. So... The wristbands are actually really cool. They just say Radically Normal Podcast, three bucks. Besides that, it's been 21 days and Coffee Mate has still not reached out to us about becoming a potential sponsor. So we're kind of just backtracked on that. Now we're looking to do the wristband thing. So we'll see how that goes. Hey, just as God is faithful to Israel, even when they're unfaithful, even though Coffee Mate is being unfaithful to us, I'm still faithful. Right now I'm drinking coffee with the peppermint mocha cream. That's 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 good. I'm glad that they they have they have our uh, we were loyal customers to them, but they just haven't reached out to us. But you know it's okay. Yep, and here we go. Chapter eleven, Nehemiah. We're gonna go through Nehemiah eleven and twelve today. So just getting into verse one, we see Jerusalem called the holy city. I think for the first time, and it's a holy city now. We see that they have a tithed people. In this chapter and in the last chapter that we had a discussion about, we see a temple with personnel in chapter 12 and now a dedicated city as chapter 12 concludes, all of which we're going to talk about today. Yeah, so so today we're doing chapters 11 and 12 and starting in chapter 11, we basically see the first thing that happens is they need to fill up the city, which is a theme that we've already seen before. Chapter 7. Where they took the census and Nehemiah wanted to see like who all the people were, and one of the reasons why was... Well, hold on. Andre decided to title the episode Census 2020, or wanted wanted us to, but that wasn't a census. Nehemiah had found a genealogy from Ezra. Sorry. Oh, okay, yeah. So the genealogy, and I don't know why I got that mixed up, but it was a good title, though. <laughs> it, was, it was really relevant, you know, to doing your census in 2020. Anyway... This is kind of looking back to that. They want to fill up the city. And it says that now uh, one out of every 10 people is basically um, being asked to move into the city. And also other people are willingly going into the city. Yeah, so we have the we have some people, one out of 10, by casting lots to come into the city. So the people would have trusted the casting of the lots as the will of God. So they couldn't point fingers at Nehemiah or anybody else saying, hey, you forced me to live here. It would have been by God's will they would have seen in the casted lots. And there's even a verse, I think, in Proverbs 16 about the will of God related to casting lots. So basically one out of 10 coming in, we can think of that almost as like a tithe. And then you have other people coming in, living in there voluntarily. So we see people representing both the idea of tithing and we have people representing the idea of free will offerings, which we 
would see earlier in the Old Testament back with the Levitical law. And shout out to Bruce Waltke's Old Testament theology for that one. So again, we have the people with a holy city. And this is picking up from chapter 7 because he wanted Nehemiah wanted the genealogy so he can move people into the city. And as we discussed that in the chapter 7 through 8 episode... Now these now this is actually happening. More people are coming into the city walls. And starting in verse 3, we see this list of who's coming into the city or who's living in the city. And one of the main reasons that I saw for why they needed to basically cast lots to get people into the city is they have the city now, the walls rebuilt, the temples rebuilt. This used to not be a populated city or anything. So obviously there's no point in doing all, all of this restoration if there was no one which could work in the city Uh, support the military of the city, protect the city, all of those things. It's important. They want to make sure to maintain the city now that it's all rebuilt and now that it's a holy city. And we also, the other people that are living there are the leaders of Jerusalem. So basically the Levites, uh, some of the chiefs, the gatekeepers, the priests. Uh, So we basically see that they're setting an example. They're also moving near to the city. They're near to the temple. And basically now the city is, is starting to be, uh, more populated. Exactly. And I think for some people, it would feel, you know, if the, even if they're chosen by lots to come into the city, it would feel like some sort of a privilege to be in the city. They would be near the temple. And remember, nowadays, we don't feel more holy or more connected in a sense to the Lord if we're closer to a church because it's not as if like in the Holy of Holies in, in the Old Testament, God was there in a unique way. It doesn't feel like that to us today, but for them, God's temple was where he dwelled in a unique way. So it might have felt like a privilege to be closer to God's presence there. And so combining that with accepting the lots as God's will from Proverbs 16.33, we really get the sense of, for a lot of people, it might have been a joy to live there. And then we see this list where chapter, not chapter, sorry. Verse 10, we see a lot of priests listed, and then we see verse 15, a lot of Levites, and then gatekeepers starting in verse 19. Verse 20 is interesting, though, because it still paints the picture of what's going on outside the city walls. So Nehemiah is moving these people in, or the leaders are moving these people in, but where are the rest of, the, where are the rest of these people in Israel? And they're just in their own towns outside the city. And so those villages are listed from verse 25 through the end of the the end of the chapter I'm pretty sure and so it's important here because it is possible with so many villages listed that some of these towns or cities were places that just had a partially Jewish pop- population but at the same time I think just getting out of this like we've talked about with genealogies before names matter to God all these places being listed all these people all these families being listed names matter to God and so it's important that we consider that and we take genealogy slowly. And one thing, just just working on slowing down in my own life, as I get to these in the Bible, I'm just consistently reminding myself to slow down, to reconsider, to learn about what's going on in the story, even around these genealogical listings. And that's pretty much it for chapter 11, short and sweet. Now we're on to chapter 12. And chapter 12 is, is basically we're going to see a lot of the same, but then there's a really cool part at the end where they have a dedication for the wall. Right. So starting off chapter 12 feels a little bit different because you do see more familiar names if you're familiar with the Ezra Nehemiah story. So we see Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Ezra, 
So we see here with Zerubbabel and Jeshua, many people who had returned and were contemporaries with those two. So these were people that would have probably returned to Jerusalem right after Cyrus had issued the edict back at the beginning of the book of Ezra. So then we see talk about priests and Levites and a list of high priests in verse 10, verse 11. And what's kind of interesting just reading this, a lot of verses are super long in the Bible. These verses are so short with the names, maybe two to four names and we're on to the next verse. So there's so many verses in some of these chapters, but it's because a lot of the verses are really short. I guess some of these are contenders for shortest verse in the Bible. <laughs> that is possible. Uh, it's possible that one of the, or maybe the shortest verse in the Bible, I'm, I'm not sure I, I could be corrected on this one, is in John 11. I think it might be verse 35, but it's just Jesus wept. That might be the shortest verse in the Bible, but I, I could be mistaken with that. And I, just, I think you might be right. Yeah, and that's, that is a really powerful verse, just thinking about Jesus' own humanity and, and relating to us and showing emotion. And it is a powerful verse, but I it, that might be the shortest verse. And then picking up before the dedication of the wall, just thinking through the last couple of verses before it, we see in verse 23, the book of the Chronicles mentioned. And my first take on that was just, oh, first and second Chronicles, look, another Old Testament connection to make. But it's actually probably more of an archive document or archival document that was stored in the temple that was found and used. And then we see David the king mentioned, and they talk about a commandment of David, the man of God, in verse 24. So you can think of times if you turn your Bibles or spend time reading or are familiar with 1 Chronicles 16 and 23, when David implements these sort of rules or commandments for Levites to stand and give praise and thanks near the temple. Yeah, that's that's pretty much all I have for that part as well. And then the dedication to the wall, uh, dedication of the wall. I think this is an incredible yeah, part of the story. I thought this was really cool too. And ba- basically the first thing that we see is uh, the priests and the Levites purified themselves. And they did this before they were going to lead everyone in worship and lead them in this dedication. And that was, that was really cool. And you told me that before we started recording that this was actually what made it a holy city. So like, you want to like elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, it's just that in verse 30, when it says the priests and the Levite purified themselves, the priests and the Levites, sorry, this idea of the Holy City, this is why, not not just having tithed people in the city and having a wall up, but also having purified religious leaders, holiness for worship being emphasized. And just a couple other things. If, you're, if you've been following along, you remember that the wall was finished, I, th- I think, back in chapter 6. So it's been a while since we've been thinking about the holiness of the wall or the inputting of the wall. So it's kind of unclear, actually, if the wall was dedicated right after it was finished. And this is kind of, there's just been a bunch of interruptions in the text and how the, the book of Nehemiah was put together. Or if there's been a, a long span of time between and a lot of things have happened, such as, as we've been discussing, people moving into the city. I kind of take the later view and think that the the flow of the story is probably more likely. So it's probably likely that Nehemiah wanted to solve those other problems first, such as getting people into the city. And the dedication of the wall reminds me of when Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8 and when the second temple in Ezra is dedicated in Ezra 6. And I'd love to hear from a listener if you have the info But I personally couldn't find a time when the original wall in Israel was dedicated. So I kind of found that interesting. But now they're dedicating the wall. This might be part of the sentiment around, oh, we want to be obligated to our covenantal renewal that we discussed in the previous episode. 
And then we see they have gladness, thanksgiving, singing in verse 27. So, like Andre said in the previous episode, they were glad about their covenantal renewal. This is continued here. And if you remember how the emotions have been swinging in Nehemiah, we saw that they were commanded to have joy at the Feast of Booths. The joy of the Lord is your strength in chapter 8. And then we saw lament and confession and mourning over their sin. And back with chapters 10, 11, and 12, we see gladness. So really just, uh, for lack of a better term, perhaps just some mood swings. Yeah, and I guess since since they are uh, renewing this covenant and they're trying to like change their ways, I could see how they have a lot of those feelings of sadness, of of really just repentance, and then now they're like super happy that that they are making this covenant again with God and that everything is kind of going how it should be going, and they have that renewal. One thing that I thought about with the the whole the dedication of the wall, you couldn't really find anything about it uh, in from the first wall. Maybe it's because since the book of Nehemiah is about the building of the wall, maybe like he found it important to to note that it was that it was dedicated and how that all kind of went down. Just because Nehemiah was the one who was the governor, he was in charge of it, and it, it might have been important to him. Yeah, that's definitely very possible. Just seeing the covenantal renewal that we've been discussing, the theme from really chapter 7, particularly chapter 9 and 10 onward at this point, I'm just kind of disappointed and sorry to say it in advance because I really don't care when people spoil movies and I guess I'm just going to spoil it here, but the people really don't uphold the covenant and it really just becomes a disappointment in the next chapter in chapter 13 when we close up Nehemiah. So I'm kind of disappointed just knowing the end of Nehemiah and how that comes about, but we know that Nehemiah is close to the end of the Old Testament story of the people of Israel and that there is a Messiah that comes. So I guess that's or I know that that's good news in the end, but man, that's disappointing. Yeah, you kind of just see they they have this confidence that th- it doesn't even seem that they're super worried about the curse we discussed in the last episode. It was kind of just a tiny little blurb in there. They're more so just listing out all the things that they were going to do to glorify God. And then we see how quickly that kind of just all deteriorates. And, and obviously this is all stuff from chapter 13, which we'll get into in the next episode. But I kind of just read, read ahead a little bit. Wanted to just finish the book uh, as I was preparing for chapter 12. And that was just something that I was like, wow, I can't believe it. But I think just considering and pondering that for a moment, I think that's the same thing that happens with us. You know, we sin or we we confess, we're lamenting over our sin and the brokenness and maybe the sense of exile from God's presence that we might feel. And then we make these obligations or these commitments. Oh, I'm going to do prolonged prayer for this, this amount of time per day, or I'm going to do this. Not in a sense necessarily just to make ourselves right with God because Christ has atoned for our sins completely, forever, freely, but just in the sense of making sure we're walking with the Lord and then we fall in sin again. So we can resonate with this picture. And what's great knowing is that despite their brokenness and despite the fact that they're going to fall disappointingly in chapter 13 as Nehemiah closes out, we know that there's a Messiah who's coming. We know there's a great end to the story with our sovereign God. So that's okay, but I do think we can resonate with that sense of recommitting covenantal renewal in our own lives and then falling once again. And that's our broken nature. That's why we have the Holy Spirit and we seek not to grieve him and we walk knowing that uh, we forever have the promise of the cross. And it also just shows how difficult it was to live up to these standards, which is basically what God has been showing them time and time again, that they will make the mistakes and that he will bring them back and restore them. And it's just great knowing that 
before, even with having great leaders such as Ezra and Nehemiah, they were falling short at every single turn. And you saw this same thing with Moses. You saw it all throughout the Old Testament. But now we, we don't have to deal with this because Jesus died for our sins. So we don't have to, we're not, we're not as bound to this, uh, the curse of, of being, uh, far, far apart from God and not being in the, in the correct, uh, place where we need to be in our relationship with him. Right. There's no, there's no covenant stipulation of this sort of exile in the, in this age of the church to think about. I, I definitely agree with that. And it is worth noting though, if you're just thinking about how salvation worked in the old Testament, the author of Hebrews in the new Testament is very clear that the people in the Old Testament were still saved solely by faith. So he he expounds this out, talking about Abraham, talking about Moses, talking about other Old Testament figures and their faith before God and how that was their salvation, how God counted it to Abraham as righteousness because of his faith. And that's how Paul develops his, his doctrine of salvation in Romans 4 as well. So it's clear that people in the Old Testament were still saved by faith, but they had a forward-looking salvation. They were looking forward to the hope of the Messiah and trusting in God's covenant promises, whereas we have a backwards-looking salvation looking back to the cross. So these laws weren't there so much to ensure salvation if you could keep all of them, then nobody would have been saved in the Old Testament. That's not the case. It's the case that these were there because of their wickedness, of their brokenness. The law was needed as as helpful boundaries for Israel. And then often I've just heard it put, and I really love this imagery. It's, there's a spiritual MRI. This law is there to remind us that we can't keep all these things on our own. And that's why we need the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's another thing just on the law. If you're, if you're really new to the idea of salvation and thinking through how we are joined in Christ with old Testament saints. And what's really interesting, just thinking back, they were also thinking back. So we see in verses 31 through 37, they begin to talk about leaders going up onto the wall, giving thanks. And then in verse 37, they talk about the city of David, the house of David. Lots of mentions of David here. And I think this is kind of on purpose because they are feeling a sense of continuity with good times for God's people. They're feeling like it's a great time for them as the people of God. And the time when King David ruled was a great time for the people of God. So a sense of continuity. We really discussed this in in the first episode of Nehemiah when we were talking about themes. So this is just a link to a glorious past and they're feeling a sense of this now. And as the people look back to the time of David, one cool thing to point out is that they are worshiping here. There's a lot of talk of all the different instruments that they had. And it just, we just see how they have joy and everything that's going on and they're rejoicing and they're just super happy. Um, it, it says in verse 43 and they, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. So they're, they're just ecstatic of, w- of what's going on. They're super happy of their restoration and they're just very happy and at peace with where they are right now. Exactly. And then just to keep reading from where Andre stopped, the women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. If we just think about rejoiced in joy, both as mentions of joy, we have that mentioned five times in one verse. And I think that's crazy. They'd finished the wall, their protection, they'd shown incredible teamwork. And now they have this joy that God has sovereignly given them. God had made them rejoice. God is in control and had brought them to this place and they've had... Uh, They offer great sacrifices that day. They're rejoicing with right worship of God, with knowledge of his covenant promises, as we saw in their confession in in chapter 9. And 
I love how their joy was heard far away. Just as their joy was heard far away, I think our joy in the Lord should be distinct from everyone else's because we know that he's faithful to his covenant promises. And so we can have a joy that supersedes all circumstances and it was seen in the lands around them. And so should ours be to the people around us. Yeah, for sure. And I think that just really is is really highlighted when it says that the joy was heard far away, that everyone kind of knew that that these people were feeling joy and that that joy was given to them by God and that basically that they were people set apart and for that was for a reason. Exactly. So I just really, that really reminds me of other stories in the Old Testament where you see, you know, the army show up and, or the nations around are in fear because they know that it had been the Lord's work or they, the enemies saw in Nehemiah six, how fast the wall went up 52 days. And so they know that they, the hand of the Lord had been upon the people of Jerusalem. And so just this idea of like, when people see this joy in us, when people see this joy in these people here in verse 43, it's obvious there's a divine origin. There's something supernatural going on. And that's how we can always point back to the cross, the way of Christ. And then just moving on towards the close of chapter 12, we see service at the temple. We see people put there and this idea of beginning a set of purification. So as we at the end of chapter 12, it's purifying the temple. Then in chapter 13, we see purifying the Sabbath, purification from mixed marriages, and then the purification of priests and Levites. So we just really see this idea of beginning to purify again. And that's kind of one of the central themes as we begin to look to the end of the book of Nehemiah. And there's kind of another just, they just kind of list out what the what they need to do it's this is a, this is a service at the temple now, and they basically say that they're uh, they're doing things with all of the contributions that people made with the tithes. Uh, they're worshiping the Lord. They're giving thanksgiving. Then it gives some instructions of how they are to uh, take care of the singers and gatekeepers, and it says that they have an important role as well. And this basically leads really well into chapter thirteen, where we see how they broke all of these um, regulations. Ah, oh, what a disappointment! And what a sad end. Yeah, and you kind of just it kind of just lists it out one more time. Hey, this is what we're supposed to do, and this is the right way to do things. And just not even a sentence later, we see, and this is exactly what they didn't do. Yeah, so verse 44 through 47, we see them appoint the storeroom stewards for temple personnel. And this is just them adding more and more care to what's going on at the temple in the presence of God. And that's how we wrap up chapter 12, and we look forward to chapter 13, where we finish up the book of Nehemiah with everybody. We hope you guys enjoy the discussion, and see you guys back next week. See ya.